Thank you for downloading this edition of Against the Odds. This recording lasts for approximately 45 minutes and is copyright. No unauthorized broadcasting, public performance, or copying is permitted without the expressed permission of the copyright owner, Philip Francis Anderson. To find out more and to request to be a guest in an upcoming episode, visit the Against the Odds page of philip-anderson.co.uk. Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of individuals who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Welcome to this final installment of this two-part podcast, Surviving Prematurity. What blindness means for those born early. With my guest, Martin Rhodes. Martin was born three months premature and spent the first 12 weeks of his life in an incubator. She didn't get that much chance to sort of hold me really, apart from a few times sort of when I was first born. She felt like I was, I was, I was never going to see my home, if you like. like she, I think she thought that the hospital was going to be my home for a long, long time, really. Martin is said to be one of 60,000 born premature every year in the UK alone, where it's estimated 2,000 are either born blind or go blind later in life, either as a consequence of too much oxygen or a direct result of a late diagnosis. It can also be responsible for damaging certain parts of your brain. So, for example, it, it was always said that I, I did have mild learning difficulties. It does take me longer to grasp concepts, if you like, than perhaps most. Beside the physical aspects, Martin will conduct us through both the emotional and psychological elements of his prematurity. There was a huge degree of negligence. I mean, my mum, she did consult a solicitor. They said that there wasn't enough evidence to uh, press charges or you know, to, even to, to make a case. While discussing the painful consequences of his parents' divorce, 32 years on. He, he left it as a, a key stage, really, in my development. I'm so glad that my mother was able to sort of pick up the pieces, really, whilst dealing with the blow herself. Surviving prematurity. The final chapter. This is Against the Odds with Philip Anderson. Martin, you were born in 1982, so that's 39 years ago. And I wondered what sort of support was available to your family at that time. Because in talking with other premature survivors, those who were born in the 1970s and even earlier in the 1960s, counselling was a no-no. And what medical information was available, they said wasn't really worth knowing. And so I wondered, really, what was available to your parents at your birth? Not a great deal, to be honest. In terms of emotional support, obviously, she did receive a lot of that from the immediate family. There was no counselling offered to myself or my mum, really. Uh, now, what was a big help to her was uh, a friend of mine, was also born prematurely at this similar sort of time to me. And her mum became friends with my mum. Of course, there was two people there who were in the same boat. So I think she became a tower of strength for my mum and my mum became just as much of a tower of strength to her, really. I think that helped her a lot. But in terms of your mother coming to a realisation 
of the implications associated with your prematurity. How did she come to that understanding about what had happened and what it meant for you? She discussed a lot with my paediatrician at the time, and she also read a lot about, you know, she read a lot of books about prematurity, did various other forms of research where she could find that information from different resources. And that, that really helped her. That helped her a lot to come to terms with things. But any, any help that we received was sourced by ourselves. It was never offered. And knowing that, how did it affect you when it came to you starting school, given the fact that there was limited information at your disposal, your family's disposal? Do you feel the school understood your situation enough? In some ways, yeah, especially when it comes to numeracy. Like Numeracy was something I always struggled with, and I do even to this day. I can count money. For example, if I go, go to a shop and obviously buy something, I how much change I'll get, for example. But my numeracy skills are definitely affected as a result of my prematurity. I don't know whether there's a certain part of your brain, if you like, that deals with those skills, but it's definitely affected by it. The school were very sympathetic about that, which I appreciated. Yeah, they were, they were really, really helpful. Like that Sometimes it would take me slightly longer than others to work on uh, mathematical questions, if you like. That's interesting because when I was at school, my my sort of medical situation didn't seem to be taken into account and I was labelled a lazy child or a disruptive pupil and that again was down to their ignorance of what was the underlying causes of that behaviour. Yeah, I was quite lucky really that the fact that they they dealt with my situation the way they did. And my brother, on the other hand, had a completely different experience because he, he has autism. So he was labelled as a, as a disruptive, lazy child. Whereas I, I guess I, I got lucky there, really. How much do you know about your prematurity? Are there any symptoms you're displaying currently which have yet to be linked? It's an interesting question. There are, there are other things I would like to know about my prematurity, especially now, you know, now I'm older, obviously I'm more aware, more self-aware. Like, for example, I'd like to know, like, my, my lack of ability to retain information when it comes to numeracy was a big obstacle for me grow, growing up. And also, like, I, I struggle to grip things and I struggle to point, you know, like, you use your index finger and sort of point at something, for example, if I need to. I find that I get pain in my fingers when I try and do that. And I often wonder whether that might be because I might have mild cerebral palsy, perhaps. I prefer to use... Um, plastic handled spoons for making tea and coffee, for example. I struggle to grip the spoon and stir. And that is a byproduct, or more than likely a byproduct of prematurity. I believe so. I mean, it might not be. It might not be, but I believe so. I mean, I, I suppose I'll never know that really, but it's something that I definitely feel I've struggled with as I've got older, definitely. I've noticed. And I, I can't think of anything else that I, I could attribute it to, really. Again, the, all these things have come to light since I've got older and I've thought about like I, I've started to notice changes in me physically and mentally, but perhaps more physically. I felt like as I was growing up that we were all learning as we went along really. So not only was I learning about my prematurity, but my teachers were as well. And you know, everyone around me was. I, I feel like it was quite a new concept for all really. Because unless you've experienced it or, you've, or you're working with someone who... who has experienced it, 
you'll never get to learn about it. So I, I feel like it was a bit of a a learning curve. A learning curve, yeah. Everybody's learning as they go along, if you like. Yeah. Uh, what about mm. spatial awareness and general dexterity? Dexterity, I'm not so bad with. I, I, I do struggle to lift things sometimes, though, again, but that's more down to grip issues. Uh, spatial awareness is okay, although I feel like it's perhaps got slightly worse as I've got older, and especially during the pandemic. Obviously, I haven't been getting out as much. So maybe that hasn't helped. If you were ever given the opportunity to, say, meet with a medical professional on prematurity, what questions would you be asking of them? I'd be curious to know oh, what other aspects of, of, of me aren't as perhaps well-honed as, as they would be if I wasn't premature. And how would we go about identifying those? Had these things been identified when I was younger, they would have been easier to diagnose. And because I'm older now, will they be harder to diagnose? Well, that's a very interesting question. And let's hope one day you're afforded that opportunity to sit down with a consultant and hopefully explore matters in more detail uh, to your satisfaction. And talking of consultants, going back to when you were born, obviously so much has occurred as a direct consequence of your prematurity. The fact that you were given too much oxygen, which has now left you totally blind, and various other symptoms you've described, such as your inability to grip, etc., which you feel may be um, a byproduct of your prematurity. Do you ever hold any of them responsible for what has happened? I do, yeah. There was a huge degree of negligence. I mean, my mum, my she did consult a solicitor, but they, they said that there wasn't enough evidence to, uh, to press charges or you know, to, even to, to make a case. So it was something that was just left. But yeah, I do. There is an element of resentment, if you like. And you know, I do feel I wish things could have worked out differently. I wish my mum could have had the explanations at the time so that she could have then passed on that knowledge to me. And maybe then I would, I would have dealt with my prematurity a lot differently. So I, I would have had more of an understanding. So she never received a proper closure, really? Not really, no. No. But I mean, obviously, we're going back to the 80s. I guess things are a lot different now. It was just left, really. Do you feel there has been significant progress in terms of what we understand now about prematurity that perhaps your mum didn't understand 39, 40 years ago. Yes, I do. I think now there's a lot more information, obviously, especially, you know, because obviously the, the internet, internet usage is more prevalent now amongst mm. a lot of people, isn't it? Everyone's got pretty much got home broadband or some sort of access to the internet. So I think that, that's been a huge help in, for people to understand. But I, I still think there's limited literature out there, though, and any, any, any new information that comes to light as a result of people's research if that can be publicised, then that's absolutely fantastic. Well, they reckon there's one in 13. I think one in every 13 babies are born premature. Yeah, somebody UK. else did. Yeah. Somebody, yeah, somebody did mention this to me. Yeah, a while ago. Well, that's, quite, that's quite something. How does wow. it feel knowing that you share a similar experience to that of Stevie Wonder? Or oh, no, he shares your eye condition anyway. Yeah, I was quite surprised when I thought it might have been yourself who told me that actually a yeah. few weeks ago and I was quite surprised to learn that. Mm. Yeah, wow. You don't feel as though you're on your own? <laughs> no, 
No, I feel like I'm in good company. Does that help you, though? Does that, I mean, do you find that reassuring? Yeah, I do. I mean, really, anybody who has a similar situation to yourself, it's just nice to know that you're not, you know, you're not adrift. There is somebody in the same boat. There is, you know, you're not, you're not on your own. Well, it's good to see that positive attitude pervading here, Martin. I'm sure it's helped you on many occasions and will continue to do so. And the ideal opportunity, I think, for us to pause a moment before we go on to discuss your uh, family issues, and namely your father leaving the matrimonial home and the deleterious effects that had on you growing up, to discussing one or two coping strategies you've deployed that's helped you in addition to positivity during some of the more trying moments uh, in your daily life. Because in your questionnaire you returned, you said that one of the other things that affects you from time to time is this overwhelming feeling of lethargy that just seems to appear out of nowhere uh, that prevents you from doing sometimes the smallest things, such as visiting the shops, you know, something that you do on a regular basis without effort, but other days it's almost as though you struggle to see it through or you feel as though it's almost an impossible task for you to accomplish. And I wondered what sort of coping strategies have you deployed which you find helpful during these trying moments that also may be of interest to others listening today? Uh, I like to listen to music. I find music can help. Mm. Uh, classical music, piano music kind of thing can help sometimes or just to sit in silence and just relax, even just to sort of go and maybe go and lie down for a while, just just you know lie on, lie on my back for like 20, 30 minutes and just relax, literally just relax, switch off. I don't necessarily sleep, just relax, just literally just lie down and just take some time out. Feel like a battery recharge, I guess. Do you have any favourite sounds and favourite places you like to go that really help you as well? Like the sound of running water, I find it really, really therapeutic. So I like, like to go and sit perhaps by the lake or like sometimes where, where my mum lives, she lives behind, behind the canal. Mm. So I like to go and sit by the canal sometimes and listen to the locks running, like the water running through the locks. I find that really therapeutic. I've always had a thing about running water and fire as well, crackling fire, like coal fires or like open fires. I love the sound of fire. Were there a lot of sound of crackling fires in your childhood that perhaps, you know, you're equating this with? Not really that I can remember. No, not really. I just enjoy that sound, really. I always have done. No, I can't remember any anything in my childhood as such that I can trace that back to. I often wonder whether, because you missed out on a lot of that initial bonding, that holding process with your mother, because of the 12 weeks or so you spent in an incubator, perhaps the the brain is yearning for, you know, it sense, senses that void or that absence and Maybe. is compensating with this whole notion or concept of crackling fires and the soothing sound of running water. So it's replaced the comfort, you know, the warm, comforting embrace that you missed with the sound of running water and crackling fires because it's uh, something perhaps you didn't experience as a child and that's what's given you the internal comforts now perhaps. Maybe, yeah, could well be. Mm, interesting. I can't like the sound of the birds, why not the, the dawn chorus, nature, that kind of thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it could be. 
quite something. If you have a story of your own to share, or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk. When I was around six years old, my relationship with my father suffered, especially emotionally. I feel like he struggled to accept the fact that I was visually impaired. It's, it's always something that he lived in denial of, really. And I, I think a lot of that is perhaps to do with the fact that I, I couldn't do things that children, if you like, that, that, that were my age could do with sight. He, he struggled to relate to the fact that I had to do things differently or adapt things slightly. I remember going to the shops, for example, and or, or if we used to go to the park, for example, he struggled with the idea of, of guiding me. I mean, he would, but it was not something that, he wanted to do, and I, I, I always picked up on the fact that that was something that he struggled with. That must have been very hurtful for you. Yes, yeah, and it was, and it, it's something that stayed with me. I, I felt like we didn't have that bond, we didn't have that physical sort of connection between father and son. We, we didn't, and, and that culminated with the lack of emotional bond it was quite hurtful. And especially if I compare that to the bond I had with my mother and my grandfather and all the members of my family, it, it, it really stands out. When I was six years old and my father eventually left, he used my blindness as one of the reasons. My mum told me that that's what he, he said when he left. I'm glad, looking back, that I heard it from her and not from him because I may have found it more difficult to deal with I'd have heard it from him than from her. How old were you when your mum told you that? I was about eight years old eventually when we eventually sat down and talked about it because I asked her about it. We had a discussion about it, about you know what, why he left. And she said, no, he, he actually blames you for the main reason why he left. But really, he left because she confronted him about his alcohol addiction issues. And he suggested that it was down to me and he, he couldn't cope with the fact that I was visually impaired. He, he couldn't deal with having it a son who was disabled. So basically you were the scapegoat because he wanted to deny the fact that he had got an alcohol problem. Basically, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could say that. So it was quite a difficult time, and but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he did leave because if, if, he, if he hadn't have left when he did and he just stayed, things could have got quite difficult. Did you find he was the sort of father who would occasionally sit with you at the table and go over your sort of homework with you or any schoolwork with you at all? Do you remember anything like that happening? Not really, Philip, no, to be honest. Partly because he wasn't the most educated of people, really. So, he, he, you know, he, 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 he never took an interest in what my homework was or what I was doing at school or anything like that. That was more my, more my granddad's side of things, if you like. Did you want him to? Yeah, I would have liked him to because my mum and my granddad did. So I always wondered why he didn't. I wondered why to him I was so different. So that, that felt strange as a child. It's quite a lot for me to take in, really. Was he ever at home when you got home from school? And Sometimes he'd be home. When, like On his days off, he'd be home or weeks off, he'd be home when I, was, uh, when I got home from school. He'd never allude to what I was doing at school or taking an interest in what, what work I was doing at the time or how, you know, how, how my overall studying was going, not really. And obviously placing more responsibility on the shoulders of your mother at that time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. 
I don't really know where I'd be now if it wasn't for the role that my mother and my grandfather played in my life. I, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I've got so much to thank them for. So how old were you when your father left? Six? Six, yeah. He, he left it as a, a key stage, really, in my development. I'm so glad that my mother was able to sort of pick up the pieces, really, whilst dealing with the blow herself. I mean, not only did it affect me, it obviously affected her as well. So whilst dealing with the emotional blow of how it affected her, she was still able to fulfil her role as my mother. And that is, well, it's a great testament, really, to the person that I am today. Do you think she was also trying to assume the male role at the same time? Yes, I do. I really do. And that is no easy feat for anybody. Like, I, I don't blame anyone. But one thing I will say, I don't, I don't hold anyone accountable. Life is a series of events. And we all have our trials and tribulations. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, or we come across obstacles... We've, we've got to pick ourselves up and try and move on from them as best we can. Were there times when you almost felt the relationship between you was normal? Was there ever a point? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I remember a time when he, he first took the stabilizers off my bike. This is when I was like 10, 11 years old, I think I was. And I'll never forget that. For that particular, that particular moment, there was a, a father and son bond. Like he helped, he did that for me and he aided me to learn to ride my bike. It's you know, it almost like wheels. you'd acknowledged a sense of achievement in you. You'd reached another milestone in your life and Absolutely, he was yeah. celebrating that with you. Yeah, I was quite touched by it. I felt like he'd overcome or he'd learned to accept that I had a disability and that I could do things, but differently. I had to adapt things slightly. And I, I felt like he came to terms with those adaptations that I had to implement in order to flourish. Had he come to terms with it? Well, perhaps not looking back because, again, these were times when he wasn't drinking and there was more times when he was in drink, if you like, than not. So the the times when he wasn't were so few and far between that I couldn't appreciate them as much as I, I should because I felt like they were overshadowed more by the times when he was in drink than when he wasn't, if that makes sense. What lengths would your father go to feed his drinking habit, Martin? To give you an example, he once went to Alfred's and he stole some bike lights, believe it or not, and placed them on my brother's person. And my brother was six, about six or seven years old, around about that sort of age at the time. And for your father to put you through such an ordeal as a young child was quite something. I mean, they took my father in for questioning and they brought my brother home in, in the police car. And, he, and that, that's something that my brother remembers. I mean, he's in his 20s now, and he still remembers that. Um, there was also another incident. My father fell asleep in the chair. They had food cooking in the kitchen. You know, they, they had the, the pans on the oven, and there was food cooking. And he fell asleep and forgot about the pans. And had he not have woken up when he did, there would have been a house fire. It was just about to start burning. And who, not was, have woken up and seen who was in the house at the time? Just me and him. I, I couldn't. I couldn't remember this person. My mum told me about this story. I couldn't remember this person. So she came home to find the house almost in flames. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Had he not have acted quickly, you know, had he not have woke up, and there would have no doubt been a house fire. 
So I, it, it's just amazing really how somebody can be driven by drink, how drink can become such a demon to somebody. The idea that you, you can just forget everything around you and just, just neglect everything just for the sake of drink. Drinking is quite something really I never understand that. Addiction's a very powerful thing, isn't it? It certainly is, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely it is. Has it made you think twice about drink or addiction yes. generally? Yes, it has. I mean, I, you know, I, I like a drink. I like the occasional drink at weekends, but I, I don't very rarely drink during the week. Very rarely. I know when I've had enough. Like when, when, I, when, I've st- when, I've, when I'm done, I'm, I'm done, if you like. When I want to stop, I'm stopping. That's it. But presumably he didn't make drink all that appealing to you, though. No, no. And I think that's because I saw the consequences of his actions when he was in drink. I always said to myself, I'm never going to end up like that. I never want to make those mistakes. So I guess in, in some ways, whilst it was difficult to deal with at the time and quite traumatic, it's also done me a favour because it's turned me into the person I am today. It's amazing it didn't put you off drink altogether. Yes, it is. It is really, yeah, because a, a lot of people would have been, and, and I can understand that. Mm. Yeah. But I'm always aware of it, though. I'm always aware of, when I drink, I'm always aware of what happened and how things were. It's amazing how you've managed to cope with that, because I'm sure whenever you open your first pint, you know, memories of your dad and so on, they must enter your consciousness at that point. Sometimes they do, yeah, I must admit, they do. Yeah, like, and if I allow myself to think about it too much, it, 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 does, it doesn't help me. It's not not healthy for me. You know? So I try not to. I try not to think about it too much. I try, I try and just enjoy the moment, and I try and think, well, you know, you're having this pint, you've opened this can because you fancy a beer. Does it worry you when you're watching other people drinking to excess to the point where it's changing their characters. Does that sometimes disturb you? Yes, it does, because it, it, it can become their life. Drink can become your life. Any kind of addiction, not, not just drink, any addiction. When it, when it drives you, when it, when it becomes your reason to get up, and that's when you think, hang on a minute, there's an issue here. Something needs to be addressed here. That's a situation that I'd never, ever want to find myself in. It makes you wonder, in a way, why your mother married your dad, doesn't it, to some degree? Yes, it does. I mean, she, she said before, like, I don't think she ever really wanted to marry him, in all honesty. It, not, not in the long run. I mean, I think one of the reasons why she did is because my nan and granddad, so my mum's mother and father, they paid for the wedding. And I think because they were paying for it, my mum wanted them to see her have a special day, if you like. And she uh, wouldn't have had you? No. You know, there the, the were pluses to it, of course, obviously, that she, she had me and she had my brother, but I don't really think she wanted to marry him, really, no. And, and that, that's made me very cautious as well about relationships and entering into relationships. What I mean is, like, I, I could only enter into a relationship if I was really sure that things would work between me and that person. Does that make sense? It certainly does. It sounds like your father's created a lot of confusion in your mind, um, in terms of maybe your identity, your inward beliefs, your self-confidence. There's a lot of undermining that perhaps you've experienced. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt there is. That's where my granddad played a fantastic role, really, in being being the father figure. I mean, you know, even though he couldn't be around all the time, 
his role complemented my mother's role in, in my life, if you like. In what as, way? As the male, well, as the male male role model, like like if if my mum was working, like my granddad would come and look after me, and we, you know, we he talked to me about you know his army days, and he talked to me about you know what life was like when he was younger, and compared to sort of how how life was when I was growing up. And I used to find those stories fascinating. I used to find it a really a real nice bonding time, you know, like we used to go. Like we used to go to, go to the shops for things or walk walked in the park. Oh. And it was quite nice. And were you able to make sense of the two sets of parenting roles, so to speak? Because obviously your grandfather was coming from a slightly more traditional perspective and your mother was perhaps coming from a very much younger perspective. Uh, do you think the two complemented each other? Yes, I do. Yes, I do very much so. I feel like I was given the chance to see both sides of the coin, if you like. It's a similar uh, situation that I alluded to in the previous podcast that I did, that, that we did about the difference between going to mainstream school and specialist education. It's the same kind of thing. I, so I had the more traditional values from my grandfather, and then I had me the younger sort of outlook, if you like, from, from my mum. And I, I find that really did help me. Were there conflicts ways. occasionally where perhaps your grandfather was, you know, more insistent on something and your mother was perhaps a little more relaxed about something? In some cases, yeah, there was. But but I think, I don't think there was as many conflicts as perhaps there would have been because my mum mm. was quite old-fashioned as well. Although she was young, obviously because she was raised by my granddad as well, because obviously it was her father. There was probably less of that than, than there could have been. Was your, those conflicts and they could have been. was your grandfather sort of very pro-physical discipline? Um, yes, yeah, he was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And my, my mum was as well, to a big degree. Maybe not quite as much as my grandfather, but she was when we were younger. How she still did... would be as well, probably, if I stepped out of line. <laughs> well, yes, of course. No doubt about it. I was just wondering, just sort of tying the two in and then looking at the way your father behaved. Now, for some children, it's not always easy to differentiate between discipline and abuse. No. And I just no, wondered isn't. whether there was an element of that, you know, confusion that crept into your life. I don't want to say yes. And I don't want to say no. What I will say is it's difficult to remember. Obviously, because it was so long ago, it's difficult to remember, mm. really. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot obviously, prior to this interview, and it, it's... Yeah, it, it's really made me think and I found it such a huge help. But there, there are a lot of things that I can't remember so well. Well, that's an interesting point, Martin, and it's got me thinking about uh, compare and contrast. And if you were to, say, look at the two contrasting aspects of your father's character, um, what would you say they were? It's an interesting question. Um, probably... I would say the best moment was probably when he took the stabilizer off my bike. I felt a real connection there. I felt like there was a real understanding just for that, that in that particular moment in time. And probably the worst time, the worst aspect was like if we like, went to the park or went to the shops or something, you know, he decided to start and buy a beer and like he'd, he'd make me wait outside the shop while he went in to buy a beer and come, come back, you know, came out again. That was a difficult time. How have you made sense of the two contrasting experiences? Um, I guess it's a 
the ability to compartmentalize things really. One is something I'll never forget, and it, it was a fantastic moment. The other one is, well, I'll remember it, but I'd rather not. So I'll just push it to the back of my mind usually. Do you think they've stayed in your mind for a reason? Yeah, definitely. They've stayed in my mind because to me, they're, they're, they're symbols of two totally different aspects of his personality. So, and I think that's what they are. They are the two things that I'll remember. And that's why, that's why they've always stayed with me, I think. They've both got their own significance. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. This is Against the Odds with Philip Anderson. Join Philip's friendly Facebook community group for a refreshing insight into the world of independence, where you'll be able to meet new friends and share your experiences. To join, visit facebook.com slash groups slash independence for life. What were you witnessing in terms of his behavior when he was under your roof? Were there any disturbing times that you can recall that left you Anxious, fractious, uneasy, unhappy, worried. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, for example, there was a time when, back in the six years old, approaching seven, and he went out one night and got quite drunk because he used to play pool. And he came home and my mum wouldn't let him into the house because she said, look, you know, I'm not going to let you in in that state. And it's not the first time you've come home in this state. I'm not letting you in. So he got angry and he started throwing bricks at the window, started punching the door, for example. And he, he would have never have behaved like that had he not been, you know, been drunk. It's, it's, I, can't, I can't describe the transformation. It was, it was unbelievable, really. What were you thinking at that point? Well, I was, I was sort of quite frightened. I was thinking, you know, this, this, is gonna be, this, isn't gonna be, this isn't good for my mom. And I was only like six years old, so approaching seven. Didn't know how to act, really. I was quite nervous. Didn't know what to think, really. Were you upstairs or downstairs at the time? I, I was upstairs at the time. I was, you know, it was late, late in the evening, so I was upstairs at the time. I was sort of in my, in my bed, and I didn't really know how to be how to react to it. It was quite, quite frightening. Well, that's a very traumatic experience you've described there, Martin. One which I think no child should ever be expected to witness at that age. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's something that I try not to think about now going forward something that I've boxed and put to the back of my mind, really. I find it easier that way. How long did that outburst go on for? Maybe a good 30 minutes or so. Well, it seemed a lot longer to me. Well, it would at your age, coming on seven. I mean, things can seem like eternity. Of course, yeah. And obviously, there was, I felt quite helpless, really. Obviously, not being able to do anything, not being able to help my mother, and you know, because obviously I couldn't see. So that made it worse as well. I guess that intensified my helplessness really, being visually impaired and knowing that there wasn't really a great deal I could do to help. What did you think he would do at that time? What did you think would happen? Well, I, he, he was quite angry, so I, I had no idea whether he might try and you know, be physically violent to my mum or what would happen. Really, I had no idea. I was quite fearful at the time. That that made me feel quite uh, quite unnerved. All sorts of thoughts were going through my head. You know, how can I help? What should I do? Hmm. You know, Should I call the police? What's, what's the right thing to do? You know, I was out of my depth, if you like. Hmm. It's difficult to know what to do. And I suppose at the end of the day, your own self-preservation was important as well. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Although I may not have thought about that at the time, but yeah, absolutely. Was that a one-off or had he behaved inappropriately and violently towards 
your mother in the past? Uh, no, that was a one-off, really. I never I really recall any other times when there was any display of violence or anything. We were quite fortunate there, really. I'm not for one minute underestimating how bad that particular night was because it was awful. So, yeah, drink drink can make people act. Were the police involved? Uh, no, no, no. It got it got resolved between them. So, luckily, we didn't involve the police. I think my dad just went to bed in the end. I think he just went to bed and slept it off, if you like. And it was resolved the next morning, just in chatting, I guess, in conversation. I strive to make sure that I would never behave that way. And if I ever have children in the future, they would never behave that way either. I guess it just makes you concentrate on becoming a better you. Does it take suffering in order for you to develop empathy? I think so, yeah, because only with understanding can there be acceptance. So, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Like in, in this case, yeah, definitely. Like, in some ways, I, I try and draw a positive from the whole experience. I try and think, well, if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be who I am. So, in a way, the, the negatives can bring out the positives because you, you aspire to be as unlike what you've seen as you possibly can. Has your father become a bit of a distant memory? It's become a lot of a distant memory, to be honest, that, I very rarely even think about it. I mean, I'll give you an example. When he did pass away, I went to his funeral and I didn't really didn't feel, feel anything. I, I mean, I went to the gym the same day. I, I left you know, the funeral service and just carried on with my, my daily life. I, I carried on doing what I would have done. So there was no love loss between you then? Not really, no. No, not really. I, like I, I didn't completely dislike him, but I, didn't, I can't say I loved him because I was never shown that affection from him. Were there many um, other supporters who turned up? There was a few people, few few friends from my dad's work where he worked, and a few, few you know some some of our family members came as well. I actually went with my nine granddad. Can you remember what the mood of the crowd was like on that day? It was relatively somber, but I think a lot of people attended from work, like from where my dad worked. So they never knew what kind of home life we had. They they saw him at work, not what he was like outside the workplace, if you like. So they had a completely different perception of him, if you like, than we had. He was a good actor then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it's amazing what, what you can hide, isn't it? You know, when when you need to, when, when you've got an addiction, you, I think you become quite good at hiding the parts of you that you don't want people to see. Did anything come out at the funeral about his drinking at all? Or you know, how, did the, uh, how did the vicar paint him as a man? They said he, you know, they said he, he, he was a good person. You know, he, he, he led quite a quite happy and fulfilled life. And he, they alluded to my, you know, myself and my brother. And, and I, well, I sat there and I actually thought, this isn't this isn't the man I knew. This isn't this isn't my father that he's talking about. Because I had a completely different perception of him, and rightly so, considering how we lived. Somber occasions like funerals, I suppose, for those who don't, you know, aren't acquainted with the family. Um, as you've rightly said, they get a totally different picture because the only picture they get predominantly is the picture that's painted by the minister or the vicar leading the service on the day. Exactly. And, you know, obviously during that service, there was a lot of divided thinking. Absolutely. uh, Where on the one hand for the familiar, uh, there were those who were thinking, well, these are all just lies. 
And for other people, they were thinking, oh, Martin was well blessed to have a very loving and caring and devoted father when that wasn't the case. No. And I felt sorry for my nan and granddad really at the time because obviously considering what my father put my mum through as well, like the fact that they they were willing to take me to the funeral as well and sit there with me and sit through that series. And for them to swallow that must have taken so, must have been so difficult for them because obviously they they knew what he was like and they, they, they saw the way that he treated my mum and they saw the way that he treated me. And then, you know, they had to go and listen to, you know, this this story painted of him that was as far from the truth as you could possibly get. And they, you know, that but they did that for me. They did that so that I could attend my own father's funeral, which was the right thing to do. And that that's why they did it because we, you know, we we always try and do the right thing. I did I did have a moment where I thought, I wish things would have been different. Like I I felt sorry, and I was sorry. I remember thinking. I'm sorry it worked out the way it did. I wish things could have been different. I wish things could have been better, but that was that. That was the way it was. I don't hold anyone responsible. I don't have any regrets. I don't... Not even your father? No, no, not at all. Because he, it, I may not have I've not had the emotional understanding to see things the way I do now, but now I just think he just struggled with it. Not everyone can accept everything. I try and put myself in his shoes and imagine how hard that must be because... Yes, okay, the father and son bond should be unconditional, but there's always elements, isn't there? No one's perfect. I get the impression you wished it was otherwise. Sometimes I do, yeah. If I think about it, I do wish it was otherwise, but that was the way it was, and everything happens for a reason. You know, it, it, it wasn't meant to be that way, so. So how have you actually come to terms with it all, apart from perhaps helping to lay these demons to rest courtesy of this interview which you know you've uh, kindly pointed out um but generally speaking i think immersing myself in projects vent you know various ventures for example all, all the technology work i do i think being instrumental in discovering my own strengths is what's helped me to overcome it i guess yes i am blind and yes i have to do things differently but there's a reason why i have to do things differently and only with understanding can there be acceptance. And I think I understand that more now as I've got older. And you felt like you could do all that without the aid of your father in your life? Yes. Well, it was a case of having to, really. I mean, you, mm. you know, you, so the brain is an amazing thing, isn't it? You, know, you, you, learn, you, you implement coping strategies. You, you try not to be judgmental because it's, it's very easy to judge people. But, and I try not to be. Like when I, when I think about my father now, I look back and I think, yeah, I wish things had been different, but he had his reasons. I don't particularly agree with them. I suffered as a result of his behaviour and his actions, but it is what it is. There's no point crying over spilt milk. There's no point dwelling on things that you can't change. You've got to pick yourself up. You've got to move on, onwards and upwards. Do you think you know Martin Rhodes better now? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I do. I feel like my interaction with people who are totally blind, so if you like people in the blind community and my interactions with people during my mainstream school years have given me a really good insight into who I really am. That chance to see both sides of the fence, if you like, they've been a fantastic part of my journey to self-discovery. Do you like what you see now, then? Yes, I do. I'm a relatively well-rounded human being. I'm affectionate. I'm quite caring. I can be sensitive where needs be. And I love to help people. And you're honest. 
I try to be, yeah, I, I try to be sincere. I think sincerity is one of definitely one of my strong points. Well, you were honest in admitting those qualities, and that takes a lot of honesty to understand and accept that. Yeah, although I'm I'm quite modest, and I think, but I think this is it. This is something that we all go through. It. I think others, for example, you know, your, your friends, your, your family members, your nearest and dearest, if you like, they always notice your strengths much more than you do. Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Philip. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk or visit the Against the Odds page on the philip-anderson.co.uk website for more information and to complete the guest interviewee questionnaire. This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our express written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.